0: Hey,
2: good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bringing On, the multiple award winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community.
1: Good evening. Hi, Clarence. It's good to be with you this evening. Hey, I'm Liz. Just- as discussed on last week's show with representatives from MCCSC, locally and nationally, there is a great concern and frustration over vaccinations and mandatory masking policies.
2: To sort of take a, another slant on that discussion, um, rather than continue on with all the frustrations and concerns that's being played out every day, turn the TV on, you'll see it. There's some deeper dives that we want to take today. And so to continue a discussion, we've invited medical and, and and individuals from the medical arena and the scientific community to come on as distinguished guests. We have Tom Harris-Mollis, MD, who is an infectious disease specialist with IU Health, Southern Indiana Physicians, his medical school, Infectious Disease Fellowship, and internal medicine residency were all completed at Indiana University School of Medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine, critical care medicine, and infectious disease. Dr. Harris-Mollis has been practicing medicine for over 35 years and is a key member of the IU Health South Central Region's fight against COVID-19. I'll also mention that he is well-renowned
1: in the community here in Bloomington. Our second Carol Weiss-Kennedy is the director of community health for IU Health South Central Region and has worked for over 40 years in the health and wellness field. Other professional experiences include serving as Program Director of Adult Health and Cardiopulmonary Rehab for the Monroe County YMCA from 1981 to 2002, and then on to work with Occupational Health at Bloomington Hospital. Carol was an integral part in the Implementation of the COVID-19 vaccination process in Bloomington. Welcome to both of you.
2: And before we get underway, and and uh, I just want to go on record as making a, a statement, in particular for this uh, conversation that is much needed, uh, and we're going to keep it within parameters because I see a lot of conversations on the media, both um, podcast, TV, radio. And they're all over the map. We, we really want to fine tune this. So, first, we had bring it on. I want to acknowledge and applaud the fine efforts that our medical heroes perform for the well being of our community. This pandemic that we'll, that we'll talk about this evening is new to everyone. Given that we do not take a hostile or, or aggressive stance with anyone or group of individuals who are working tirelessly for our health and well being, we purposefully won't politicize our discussion tonight. We'll try to walk carefully around any third rail issues, but we do have some issues and points worth examining. With that being said, again, welcome to our esteemed guest and my wonderful co-anchor contributor. So let's get started. Um, by way of introduction, as we sort of put the first question out there, if you want to take some time just to introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit about yourself as well as answer the questions. We hear what's going on nationally, and we hear some of the unfortunate events that are taking place in different states, and they don't need to necessarily be revisited, but it's, it's sort of wreaking havoc out there with uh, the Delta variant. What are we seeing locally in terms of COVID rates, inpatient rates, and vaccination rates? And I'll start off uh, with Dr.
3: Harris-Mollis and then uh, to uh, Ms. Reese-Kennedy. So, Dr. Harris-Mollis. And I think, um, you know, um, Carol uh, can certainly speak to the some of the vaccine uh, statistics and so forth. But um, this Delta variant surge is something we were hoping that we would avoid. Um, we knew that this virus mutated, but um, it was a little bit surprising to see a variant emerge with such a increase in its transmissibility. And this is what uh, was obvious on the news, spreading through India, spreading through the United Kingdom in a uh, few weeks and a uh, couple months, You know, in, in advance of what we're experiencing here. So we are in the middle of a surge. The cases are still increasing throughout the United States and in here in Indiana and here in Monroe County. Um, uh, it is certainly more transmissible probably three to four times more transmissible as the original strain was. Um, there is some debate as to whether it is more virulent in terms of causing disease. Is it more serious or not? There's some data from Europe and Scotland that suggested that perhaps it was. I think it's hard for us to tell. It's, it's probably in the same ballpark, probably similar to what we've what we've experienced before um, uh, in that regard. Um, so. We're uh, hoping that we can get through this surge without uh, a big, more of a strain on the healthcare system, and uh, uh, avoiding as many deaths and serious illnesses as we can.
2: If there's something in your introduction that we did not mention that that bears mentioning, if you
1: be so kind as to mention that, and then of course let's um, go ahead with the question afterwards. Uh, I, I no. would just like to be clear on how it's transmitted. Is it airborne? Should, uh, is touching things? Just how is it transmitted? What are those specifics?
3: So as you recall, over the past year, there's been a lot of discussion of that. Well, how is this transmitted? Can I go to the grocery store and pick up my groceries? Can I, you know, what? how is it transmitted? What we've learned is that it is not transmitted very readily by touch, by surfaces, by things that you come in contact by hand. It can be transmitted, but its major route of transmission is via the respiratory route. So that is people breathing, coughing, sneezing, creating droplets in the air that you then inhale. Clearly, this is primarily respiratory transmitted. Again, not that it can't be transmitted by touching something and then touching your face or your mucous membranes, but that seems to be a minor mechanism of transmission.
1: A girlfriend of mine who has um, allergies was told by her allergist uh, when she travels on a plane to put two masks on. What do you think about that?
3: Well, the issues with masking, double masking, N95 masking is all a matter of levels of protection. Um, And none of these masks are perfect. Um, I think people forget the fact that when we speak of N95 masks, which are supposed to be you know, the medical high grade masks, the 95 means that 95% of particles of a certain size, four microns or less, are filtered out. So even there, they are not saying that those masks are 100%. The point being, though, that most respiratory droplets um, are, and the ones that carry viruses are filtered out by these masks. And so Um, uh, they do offer some protection to the individual who's wearing them. Perhaps more potently, if I am carrying coronavirus and I am wearing a mask, it prevents those viral particles from entering the air. And it's better at preventing me from spreading it even than it is in you from getting it. Wearing two masks, the idea behind that is that the second mask helped seal the the, the, uh, mask onto the face. So there was less gaps. And that probably would increase the effectiveness of the mask. Um, You know, people read all kinds of things. The masks work, the masks don't work. You know, why do we have to wear masks and so forth? I can tell you from a hospital setting where we have some control over it, it's very interesting that, you know, back last year in the spring, we had many healthcare workers become COVID infected. And we looked at this very carefully. And what was interesting is we mapped it all out and we found that the healthcare workers that were getting COVID were not taking care of the COVID patients. They were wearing a mask and they were protected and they did not become infected. Initially, we put patients who we thought did not have COVID into a separate area of the hospital and the nurses there did not wear masks because we thought it was only transmissible when you were symptomatic, but that's where they got it. And as soon as we changed the policy and said, stop, everyone wears a mask when you walk into the hospital, everyone wears a mask, the number of infections dropped to zero. So you know from, a, from the healthcare setting that wearing even a surgical mask, and we're not talking N95, just regular three-layer surgical masks that you can buy you know, at the store, they are effective in preventing uh, in transmission of infection. Thank you. Uh, Miss uh, Weese Kennedy. Now,
2: now, before we go further, may I call? What may I call you both? Because as uh, Carol, are are you fine with that? I am. And I heard Dr. Tom earlier. Uh, uh, Tom so, is fine. You bet. Okay. All right. Um, so, Carol, if if you can respond to that as well.
4: Yeah. So, um, if we think about vaccination rates for our county, for Monroe County, you know, when we had the vaccination clinic. Opened the 1A site near the hospital, we were so excited because we had full schedules. We had people coming in, very interested. And I feel like we quickly rose to, you know, vaccinating 50%. You know, our county, we had over 50%. And we were creeping up maybe close to 55. Um, more vaccine became available. The 1A hospital sites were, you know, were just transitioned out and um, we've seen the vaccination rate kind of stay steady around that. It didn't. It hasn't continued to grow. Um, we are in Monroe County. We're one of the um, higher vaccinated counties. So we are above that 50%. Um, and probably by zip code within our county, we have some higher levels within each of our zip codes. So we still have some work to do in our county. Um, Monroe County is a service area for a number of our surrounding counties, and that's where we really would like to see an increase in vaccination um, for those people that are living in those counties. And, and um, so there's um, there's some potential there for us to be able to, to help with that as well.
1: Well, Carol, are you going out to the counties or are you expecting those people to come sure.
4: here? So we do a variety of things in community health. One of our departments is the Monroe County Health Department. I'm sorry, the Monroe County Public Health Clinic. And we work with the health department. We we have a contract with them. And so we do the clinical side of what a health department does. Um, We focus on Monroe County and we go out into the county. So we have set up a number of pop-up clinics that we call um, throughout the county and um, you know going to targeted locations um, where people are not vaccinated and offering the vaccine. in throughout this month we're transitioning because school is back in session and schools are one of our targeted populations. so in September we will um, take the vaccine and go into the schools in Monroe county and vaccinate, upon consent from parents within the schools for those that are eligible. So that's going to be the 12-year-old plus. Um, We'll give the first dose in September, and then we'll go back three weeks to four weeks later and give the second dose. At that same time, we should have the the annual vaccine for flu, and we can offer that as well. Um, So this has been something that we've done within our community schools um, for years, and um, so the process is well in place. Um, it allows parents to have their kids vaccinated. They don't have to take the day off of work and make an appointment. Um, and so we just we try to take it as close to people as we can, so that we make it as convenient as possible. Sometimes we find out that's the reason they haven't gotten it yet. They haven't had an opportunity to go somewhere to get it. Um, you know, we. So it's it's just very helpful to have it on site wherever possible okay
2: i wanted to uh, follow up on that uh actually by posing a question that was offered by our co-producer uh, william hosea and, and it's in alignment with what we're talking about it, it's um it's something that i guess when you speak of everyone wanting to do what we should be doing and, and be observant for those that are uh we sort of run sometimes into this sort of uh, confusing situation where some of the rules of a mask requirement or mandate are difficult to understand. If we're required to wear a mask upon entering certain facilities, restaurants, and gyms, but then allowed to remove them once inside, how is that effective in protecting against COVID? And and Carol, I'll I'll turn it over
1: to you. Sure,
4: I can. um, So the mask mandate in Monroe County, is in place. And um, that means that any public location, any pl- public setting, uh, you need to have a mask on to enter. Um, if you are, so for instance, if you go to a gym, you use the example of take it off once you arrive, you can take it off when you, and, and so I can use the YMCA as, a, as an example. You need a uh, mask to enter. Once you get to your machine, if you're using a machine, you can take it off because you are more than three to six foot distance from someone else. Um, they also have a policy of wiping down the equipment when you're done. And you know the, the compliance with that at the Y is very good or any gym hopefully is very good. They don't wanna just single out the Y. Um, where I go to work out, the very same thing happens. When you are at your machine, you, take, you are able to take your mask off following that social distancing rule. When you go to the grocery, you leave your mask on because you can't always be sure that you're going to be social distance from someone. And it's just that courtesy of leaving that on. Um, and, you know, so using the science of the mask and the social distancing, and then, you know, as always, wash good hand hygiene um, can be very preventative.
2: So well, you would say that uh, some of the Sometimes mixed messaging that goes on. Very well,
4: long. I think I think it's hard, you know. Um, I think that um, maybe messages are just hard to understand and to act on. Many times, especially if there's a desire to to not do it. You know, masks are inconvenient. They're hot in the summertime, but it's you know the science is there, as Dr. Tom said in the hospital, it showed up immediately, you know, um, through COVID and and who was getting COVID and who wasn't, and it was, you know, because of mask wearing.
2: I will say um, that since that fateful March month, when we're scrambling buying everything that looks like a mask off the shelf, to ordering and some, and some, Websites made a ton of money off of us, but nevertheless, now they're very plentiful everywhere you look. They're giving them away, whatever. I have noticed for me personally. I, I know me. I, I know that typically throughout the year, I may have two to three bouts with um, or oh, a head cold, or maybe something a little bit more severe. I haven't had anything, Right. and, and I really attribute it to just being mindful. Right. About uh, sanitizing, distancing, and wearing a mask. Yes, it is hard sometimes to breathe, depending on the cloth versus uh, other type fabric material. But um, just being just being mindful of, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes we have that inner voice that says, "I wonder if I should wear a mask." Put the mask on. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. When <laughs> um, in doubt, put the mask when on. When
2: in doubt, put the mask on. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Harris-Small. I, I
4: agree, Clarence. I, I haven't had anything knock on wood since we started.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We can say that also with our flu cases this past winter, exactly. they dropped almost nothing because people were wearing masks. I think that, that hmm. and understandably so, we are, we were learning throughout this entire past year. So people take You know, worry about, gee, you said don't wear a mask, then you said do wear a mask, then you said wear two masks, then, you know, and I understand that gets to be very confusing, but we were struggling and learning how is this virus transmitted? What size particles is it? What is the distance of spread? And we didn't know to begin with. And so with time, we learned what worked and what didn't work. And so You know, I understand the mixed messages and the confusion that that caused, but we have a better understanding now than we did a year ago.
1: Um, My question is Do um, I had planned to? I'm working on a documentary, and I had planned to go down to a small town in Southern Indiana. And I was just in communication with the librarian there who said most of the kids are in quarantine in this particular small town. And she said she's had to run parents and their kids off. The parents are bringing them to the library. Do people not understand some words? You think that you don't understand what quarantine means, uh, or they just got to go to work and just got to find a place for the kids. Um, that, that's a problem with that. So w- w- we, you know, and I, so I said I wasn't going to go because of that that no one is paying attention to that. You think that's a problem that people really just don't understand that?
2: Carol, I think that's a question maybe for you to start off with.
4: Sure, sure. I think um, it might be a couple things. Maybe understanding uh, is an issue. Um, and then we also don't know what's going on in other people's lives. It might be that someone can't miss a day of work. Um, and I'm not agreeing that how they're handling it is the way to handle it, but, um, you know, there are people that have jobs that they can't miss a day or they'll lose the job. Um, and, you know, so I think one of the things that we've all learned, um, and hopefully practice is grace, giving grace to people, giving patience, you know, helping, um, not being confrontational and just trying to help people understand and make things easier for each other as we move along. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's those simple things, wear a mask, social distance, and wash your hands, um, you know, f- that will get us through this and get vaccinated when you can. Those are the, s- the very simple things that we can all do. But I think along with that, we have to offer grace to each other.
1: I agree. That, that, that's the perfect way to put it, offer grace. Show some love.
4: Yeah, exactly.
3: I, th- I think the the issue with children is many parents oftentimes also assume that their kids will not become seriously ill with this because illness tends to be milder in in younger children. But what they don't quite grasp is those ki- children can spread that virus to other people who may be much more vulnerable and may, may be at much higher risk. And so that's the that's the point there. And I would agree entirely with what with what what Carol has said as well, in the sense that employers need to be understanding in this environment that we're in and give people the benefit of the doubt so we can get through this and do what's proper and protect everybody.
2: you know to your to your point, um, as far as children being um, hate to say little incubators, <laughs> but they could be. Uh, vectors, or I think I'm saying that right. They can bring something home to maybe elderly grandparents that may be in the home, or to someone who's uh, has uh, some compromising situations. When this all sort of broke last year in March, and we we came up on, of course, the spring break season. Everybody was holding their breath, hoping that we didn't, didn't have the super spreader events. But then we hear that there were purposeful events called COVID parties. We're, we're much to, you know, the mentality of, you know, when we were little, we talked a little bit offline about the chicken pox party. Where some of, some of our listeners may not believe it, number one. Some may recall it, but not want to admit it. But some of us, we were younger, we were taken over to our cousin's house that had chicken pox.
4: <laughs>
1: to,
2: to get it out of the way and check that box. But, um, but you know, we, we think as we get older and wiser, we wouldn't make ourselves so vulnerable. But yes, yet that was going on. So we're learning, and just as you said earlier, we're learning. Um, and, and before we get into myths, I do want to take just a moment because we have a, a lot of questions to ask. I just want to say that if you tuned in to Bring It On, you're listening uh, to two uh, wonderful guests, Dr. Tom harris Wallace who is an infectious disease specialist with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, and Carol Weiss-Kennedy, who is the Director of Community Health for the IU Health South Central Region. And they're joining us uh, this hour to talk about just this new variant that's not so much on the horizon anymore, but it's sort of made itself uh, uh, more manifest in our communities. What are some of the biggest myths that you both have heard? And then let's just put that on the table right now. What are some of the whoppers that are out there?
4: So, and, and just as, as recent as today, um, there is a belief that there is something in the vaccine that is tracking us. That's I've heard that the most. Um, that's, you know, that's just, that's probably the most common one that, really needs to be debunked, Um, you know, and if you think about what we do with our cell phones every day and what we like on Facebook and what we answer on Facebook, um, that's what is, you know, that's an example of tracking. There's nothing, and Dr. Tom can speak to the science of the vaccine, but there's nothing in the vaccine that can do that. The other myth or misunderstanding that I think is keeping people from getting the vaccine is the thought that they have to be a documented citizen to get the vaccine. And that's absolutely incorrect. All we ask for is we name an address and a cell phone number so that we can, so they can actually get their their vaccination proof. Um, There is no, um, no documentation of citizenship at all asked. Um, we take people from different states we would we are vaccinating people that are coming in out of the country to go to school here so it's everyone you know hands down is eligible for the vaccine if they meet that age requirement
1: my question is carol or or dr tom what about the homeless how we're we oh. taking care of them? and that's the most diverse group in bloomington Right there yeah. at Seminary Square, unless there's other spots. But how
4: are we vaccinating them? Yeah, so I can speak to that because we have gone again through our clinic, we the Monroe County Public Health Clinic, we've gone on site and we continue to go on site because it's uh that population changes over. Um, so we have since we've had the vaccine, we've been to Wheeler Mission. Um, we've been to Beacon, we've gone to Friends place and the winter shelter. Um, and we have anywhere that um, there is a, a group that is willing to get the vaccine, we have taken the vaccine. Um, and if you know if before we had Johnson and Johnson, we did Pfizer or moderna and went back a second time to give the second dose. Um, so and we continue to work with the shelters to schedule, those ongoing vaccination clinics on site. Are you having any trouble with the homeless uh, being vaccinated or are they willing to do it? They are um, there. Those that have shown up have raised their sleeve. We've given, I can't tell you the number because we've been so many different times. Um, But yeah. And we, like I said, we continue to go back Wheeler um sets up we set up in their um main lobby area and we have a monitoring area for them the team over there that works at Wheeler has been really helpful in lining the people um you know making sure that those that are interested in getting it are there um when we're there and um so it's it that has worked really well
1: I have a question for Dr. Tom would you tell our listening audience exactly what are the symptoms I I I cuz I I know cough is one. So what are the symptoms A to Z?
3: Sure the, there are a, a long list of symptoms but um headache, fever, uh loss of taste, loss of smell, cough, um nausea, diarrhea, uh, would probably be the major ones and that leads into um a comment that i wanted to make about symptoms and symptoms and one of the myths that we do here and that is we hear a lot from young adults who are healthy that they don't worry about getting covid because they're young and they're healthy and they would be fine and the fact is that most young healthy adults you know college age kids and stuff like that they're not going to get hospitalized they're not going to develop that type of illness but The number of young adults who have persistent symptoms that go on for months after COVID, which include things, speaking about symptoms, which include things like feeling shortness of breath, exertional intolerance, uh, headache, difficulty focusing, difficulty concentrating, uh, doing those type of things is really remarkably high. There are studies that show 30%, 50% of young adults have persistent symptoms out four to six months after a case of COVID. So it's not entirely benign for even young, healthy individuals. So uh, uh, for sure. With this more recent Delta variant, we've been seeing more symptoms that are similar to a common cold, nasal congestion, scratchy throat, things of that sort that we didn't really see so much of last year. So um, yeah, when in doubt, best to get yourself tested and find out.
1: When can kids uh, five and up be vaccinated?
3: Um, that, that data is being reviewed by the FDA right now. So I would hope uh, by certainly by the fall that they would give approval for, for younger people. Pfizer currently is, rec- is um, approved for over age 12 and Moderna for over age 18. And so hopefully we'll get those younger kids with the next uh, approval here in the next uh, two, three months, I would hope.
1: And tell about the booster shot. yeah, Are we going to do it or not? Liz, Liz you, you are taking my question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But go ahead. Go ahead. It's all right.
3: So with respect to COVID booster injections, the FDA has approved booster shots for immune impaired individuals. So individuals who have cancer, who are currently receiving chemotherapy, individuals with organ transplants, HIV patients with low immune systems, and so forth, people who meet certain criteria, they can get a booster dose right now. Um, For the rest of the population, they are planning uh, to offer booster doses this fall. Um, uh, In general, eight months after you finished your previous series but we're waiting for all that the the details uh you know for the for those uh, uh additional booster doses you know there's been some debate about well who would really need the booster dose um the intent looks like it's going to be a general one for for anyone who's been vaccinated before because they're trying to decrease the risk of ongoing transmission it looks like immunity tends to decrease somewhat, six, eight months after uh, you've been vaccinated, it doesn't go away. You still have pretty good protection and very good protection against hospitalization. But if you're trying to stop transmission, uh, this is the reason for it.
1: Okay, thank you.
3: Um, I want to revisit uh, just Liz's point
2: about children five on up. Am I correct? Carol or Doctor Tom, there were some. I hate to use the word experiments, um, and in some communities, you start using the phrase experiments. That community sort of turned a deaf ear, and we could talk a little bit about the, a little bit about that. But um, infants were receiving vaccinations. Is that correct, or did I did I miss here? And I don't want to start uh, like a rumor tonight or anything, but were infants in tests? Test scenarios where they were receiving vaccinations?
3: Um, They have done trials. My understanding, they've done trials of the vaccine uh, starting, yes, at young age. You know, I I don't know exactly when they started. uh, uh, You know, what age they've been experimenting. uh, At what age they've been doing the experimental trials in. But it goes down, yes, into very young children. And, and this ties into it that I heard recently that even pregnant
2: mothers, um, uh, they were a little fearful about getting a vaccination shot, but they were assured that, you no, know, you can get a, a vaccination yes. shot.
0: Well, they've, and, they,
3: yeah, they've looked carefully at pregnancy. Um, and initially, you know, the, the they didn't have the data to know whether to recommend it or not. They do have good data now that shows there's no increased risk of side effects. There's no impact on the pregnancy. The um, uh, vaccination of pregnant women is now recommended by all the uh, medical organizations, including the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and so it's believed to be safe during pregnancy.
2: Oh, and we can, I,
3: yeah. Can I can I take that uh, uh, thought? of perhaps the child being protected by the pregnant mother getting a vaccination? Can I draw that conclusion? Uh, that is being studied as well. Antibodies, if a mother has been vaccinated, are present in breast milk and so could uh, be transmitted to the child. We don't really know what level of protection that provides, but that's being looked at. So theoretically, yes, as is the case with other vaccines we give to pregnant Women, So we give women during pregnancies, all of them get a pertussis, a whooping cough vaccine, with the intent of the vaccines and the mother protecting the infant until they're six months of age and have the ability to get their own vaccine.
2: I believe uh, that Liz has a question. Uh, but Carol, did you have a follow-up comment to anything that we discussed in yeah. the last few minutes?
4: Yeah, I just wanted to, to <laughs> take the the trial a little bit further or a little bit of history and Dr. Tom can probably speak to this, but what all the different populations and age groups that we're talking about and, and answering and talk, asking questions about, they've all been studied. This has been, these trials have been going on for over for quite a while. There were so many people that jumped on to the trial in the very beginning that um, the the um, vaccine makers had plenty of data to turn into the to the um, FDA for approval. And, and I'm wondering if maybe we can talk a little bit about how the trials were run and, and how long they've been going and how all those different groups have been studied so that we do now start to have the information that makes us confident to be able to provide the vaccine to the different age groups. And Dr. Tom might be able to speak to that, but there was no, um, we all tried to get in on a study. I tried, um, my team members tried to get the kids in on studies and there just was not room because they were full. And I think that speaks to the interest of people wanting to have this available for others.
3: Yeah, I and I certainly understand, you know, when people have concerns or questions about immunizations, particularly in young kids or even in infants. Um, those are legitimate uh, questions. But if you look carefully at the history of immunizations, it is one of the most powerful things we've done to save lives. But- and to stop disease, it is remarkable. I would say with perhaps the exception of clean water, it is, has done more benefit uh, for health and life expectancy in the world than anything else than, than, that we have done. And we give young kids vaccines all the time. We give them uh, tetanus and diphtheria and polio and hepatitis i mean children get their first dose of hepatitis b before they leave the hospital and we give measles and mumps and rubella and we prevent all these diseases so our goal should be to look at very young children and see how can we generate immunity to prevent them from ever having to deal with these dangerous illnesses so i'm a i think vaccines are are remarkable and these vaccines that we're dealing with now with the COVID are even more remarkable in how effective they are and how safe they are. Um, so I'm t- totally impressed. I, I would make a couple comments. You know, this is you know people felt well this was rushed and this was you know done too quickly. It was not. I mean, remember we had a coronavirus SARS epidemic back in 2002 and 2003. They began studying the viruses then and all the basic research to know about the spike protein and what was necessary and where immunity made a difference was done back then. I mean, we have decades of experience in studying these viruses and the messenger RNA platform that's being used has been used to develop vaccines against Ebola and Zika and other diseases over the past decade. It's not really as new as a lot of people uh, believe.
1: uh, Dr. Tom, you hit the nail right on the head with that hammer because I was just going to say I'm glad that the generations before us, my parents and grandparents' generation, didn't question. They got the polio vaccines, they got all of these vaccines, Um, and the things that were done to African Americans back years ago, that kind of stuff uh, has not happened. In, in years, uh, there are more black doctors involved with the research and they're not going to put up with uh, doing one thing for one group of people and something else for another. Um, but I guess the, the older African-Americans like my mother, I can't convince her of that uh, because those horrors are still in her head. So she she won't get it. But I'm so glad you brought those points up because that was going to be part of my question. The, the, so thank you for mentioning how long you've been working on these vaccines. The next part of it, you had mentioned organ transplants, at, uh, those people for boosters. I've had people uh, wanting to know uh, about diabetic people, or uh, obesity, people who have asthma, do they qualify? under
3: uh to get a booster now um those individuals do not yet qualify the the list of immune impaired individuals is is fairly narrow and specific, but all of those people i think will be will qualify in the near future uh just within the next many weeks. I think the fda's policy on routine boosters for everybody uh will be you know formalized and all complete and We'll be ready to go. Um, Everyone's sort of gearing up for that right now, trying to get prepared uh, to make sure uh, that we're all all ready to do that. But um, there should be plenty of vaccine. We're not in the situation that we were at the beginning. The supply seems to be much improved. I think Carol can maybe speak to that. Um, uh, But I think we'll be okay.
1: Do you see us getting a booster every year like we do with the flu shot? You see us getting a, a COVID shot every year?
3: I don't know I'm kind of hoping that it's not that frequent that we need a booster dose um, I think uh, it's certainly possible that this virus becomes just a normal part of our lives and we have to boost uh, we have to keep maintain immunity and then the question will be how frequent does that booster dose is that booster dose needed I would remind people that three doses of vaccines are actually quite common I mean, you're familiar with getting a tetanus shot and maybe you get one every 10 years and you're familiar that a hepatitis B series is three shots and and you get polio at least three or four shots. And once you develop a certain level of immunity, it can then last lots longer. So I'm kind of hoping that after three shots or so, maybe our immunity will last longer and we won't need it every year. But I think we'll find out as time goes on when it's necessary.
1: Thank you. For those
2: who've uh, just tuned in, uh, we're having a conversation with uh, Dr. Tom Harris-Mollis, who is an infectious disease specialist with IU Health Southern Indiana physicians, and Carol Weiss-Kennedy, who is the director of community health for the IU Health South Central region. And um, we talked earlier about the homeless, but for someone who may not be homeless, but may think, oh, I don't have the money to get a shot. We know it's free. But they may not um, know where to go now because um, I, if if I'm concerned I haven't received my vaccination, where should I go? And I turn it over to Carol.
4: Sure, thank you. That's a great question. Um, right now, all of our um, primary care and our pediatric clinics have the vaccine. Um, so if you have a a physician or a provider here in town, you can, request it um, from their office. Um, CVS uh, and uh, I think Kroger are sites and possibly Walgreen. I don't know that we have as many Walgreens here in town, but CVS and Kroger definitely have the vaccine. If you go to myshot.gov, that will give you the location of a variety of sites that you can get the vaccine and you can even schedule yourself. Here at our office, which is 333 East Miller, We provide Moderna on Mondays and uh, people can call and um, I can put the phone number in the chat. But again, that um, myshot.gov will also uh, identify our site. Um, We're doing pop-up clinics and if churches or other groups would like to have us bring vaccine to their site, we're happy to help with that. Um, But so there are ample places to get um, vaccine here in our community and in our surrounding communities. And then I wanted to mention testing too, because that might be a question that a lot of people have. Um, some of the testing sites have closed, and our you know, CBS is a current site that you can get tested. Um, our Our pediatric office offices and some of our primary care offices are offering testing. But to be honest, they are being inundated because so many schools, Um, Are opening, and um, you know, if somebody's been exposed, um, a student or a teacher may need a a negative test to go back to school. Um, So, we are actually working with them uh, to add some additional testing site and additional testing site in the community. Hopefully, next week we'll have that information, excuse me. And then, um, you know, just depending on the need, we hope that, um, you know, there might be other community partnerships that can um, pop that up. That that can provide testing. Um, again, that vaccination shot, that vaccination site is ourshot.in.gov, and that will um, uh, populate by zip code and location where you can get the vaccine.
2: We've not talked at all tonight about countering messages, myths, opinions that. Dr. Harris um you probably heard it all. What do you tell that person that's
3: hesitant to get a vaccine uh, um, for whatever reason? What do you tell them? Sure, um, I I ask them what is their concern because I'm not here to necessarily preach to them or tell them you know what I think. I want to know what their concern is or what is it that worries them about the vaccine because I can. I can explain and I can allay some of the fears that I hear. Um, and so that's my first thing, you know, what is it that is your concern about the vaccine? Let's talk about that. Um, you, I've heard a lot of reasons. Um, some of them are concern over, you know, side effects. Um, some of them are concerned that we haven't, uh, we don't have enough data yet, that they're not fully FDA approved. Uh, yet. uh, And then those all are good discussions to have. And we provide patients information and see if they can, uh, you know, and see if that would help them make a decision about whether they want to get the vaccine or not. The the most difficult ones are the ones like Carol alluded to when people say, well, I'm concerned uh, that this will cause sterility, or I'm concerned that there's a chip in there, or I'm I'm concerned of this conspiracy or that conspiracy, or I'm I'm concerned about um, that the pharmaceutical companies are just making money off of this. Those are more difficult to discuss because they're not always based in a lot of logical uh, uh, matters. In terms of people who have legitimate worries or concerns or questions, I'll tell you, we can usually answer those questions, and most of those people, I think we can convince that this was a good would be a good thing for them. Um, but um, but you know people have different life experiences and have uh, different and make different choices. Uh, we just want people to be safe. We want to keep people out of the hospital. We don't want to see serious illness. I've been thinking uh, for a while, and perhaps our producers that
2: helped me through this, but. You know, we we have various communities in which we live in. um, And for the religious faith-based community, that's a three-part show. (laughs) We don't have time to start that conversation, but uh, the concern is definitely there. So we may craft a series of conversations with pastors and others who, um, officials in churches, just to get their thought about informing their membership uh, to make a wise choice, and I'll leave it there. Uh, yeah. but, uh, I'm definitely considering that. And and then the other thing too is uh, you mentioned FDA. Um, is there is there any late breaking news from the FDA or CDC uh, about full approval of, of any vaccine that's coming on on the on, on the market?
3: Uh, so um, they always do their due diligence, and so sometimes the wheels move slowly. My understanding is that they have had all the data that they need, both from Pfizer, Moderna, and I think as well from Johnson & Johnson, uh, and they're just working their way through it. I am told that at least the mRNA vaccines are probably going to be given full approval sometime before Labor Day. Now, whether that pans out, I don't know, but I, I hope so, because I think that will allay certain people's concerns. Um, well, e- Educate us because you
2: used a phrase, mRNA, mRNA, so or
3: the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are we call them mRNA vaccines? mRNA stands for messenger RNA, and that's the mechanism whereby they deliver information to our cells to generate this immune response. Uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, uh, or the, what's sometimes called the Janssen vaccine, that's a different type of vaccine. That's in what's called an adenovirus vector vaccine. And it works a little differently. They both generate the same kind of immune response against the same coronavirus proteins, but they're a little bit different in how they how they create that immune response. So we lump Pfizer and Moderna together as mRNA vaccines.
2: And that's good to know, because
3: you use those phrases, I not know, for me, it kind of went up to a high altitude. But again, yeah. we so brought it back down. That's interesting because I hear that a lot. They say, well, what is mRNA? What is it? What are they injecting into me? And messenger RNA is a normal part of our cells. Every cell in your body is chock full of messenger RNA. Uh-huh. Those are messages that tell the cell what to do and how to respond and what proteins to make. And we're sneaking in a little message there asking the cell to produce a coronavirus protein to generate an immune response. Um, The food that you eat is full of messenger RNA. You are full of messenger RNA. It's a normal component of cells. There's nothing odd or strange or unusual about it. It's a normal component of your cells. We have less than uh, five minutes left. And so I'll turn this over to Liz to ask a final question
2: of
1: our guests. Uh, As final words to the public, especially uh, to older African Americans who refuse to get the vaccine because they're covered in the blood of Jesus. What would you say to those folks? Either one of you, uh, either Carol or Dr. Tom. Sure.
3: You know, I think that in convincing people who have hesitancy, and I understand, you know, particularly when you're looking at historical issues that uh, influence people's lives, I think it helps a lot if they have a trusted family member or a trusted physician or a healthcare person that they can talk to, someone who they know, someone perhaps who they've known for for a long time, because there's that trust. And if you can work upon that 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 relationship, I think we, we can show people why this is a is a good thing to do, um, and why it's a safe thing to do. Um, but I think that's where I would usually go with that. Is you know it needs to come from someone who's who's trusted.
4: Yeah, sounds reasonable. Yes. And Carol, what would how would you answer? Um, well, I agree with Dr. Tom, and and I think I would just encourage them to ask questions and seek out people that they trust that that um, they can get that science based that evidence based question answered. Um, we've had you know. We, in our clinic that we stood up here and in Orange County, we vaccinated over 90,000 people um, and just what a, a honor that was and a privilege to be able to do that. I want to share one thing. We had one man who came in who was, you worked for Pfizer when the polio vaccine was developed and ready to go. And he helped deliver it because they went state or they went town by town. And he was assigned to go to Cleveland and just to talk to him and how excited he was to get the vaccine and just that history that he had was I I, that was I I will always remember him, but older gentleman that just, you know, was ready to get vaccinated. But please ask questions, seek out um, evidence based information. What percentage are we at now, Carol,
1: as far as vaccinations in Monroe County? Are we anywhere close to 80,
4: 90%? No, we're not. We are, gosh, we're still just over 50%, probably 54%. Um, yeah, we're not now. Things may change in the next few weeks because we have students coming back and they need to be vaccinated to come back. So um our population of vaccinated. Individuals will grow in the next few weeks. Um, we also have that full approval that we're looking for from uh, the FDA that may encourage others to get it. So, you know, just really hoping that we continue that, that that trend starts to inch up.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's I a think good positive. Point. And that's a good point to, to end our conversation on for now. I'd like to just go ahead and mention. But as we go forward in the weeks, months to come, uh, we may be reaching out again, just as a follow up, because things will be changing, I'm sure. And hopefully we'll be making great strides to mitigating, eradicating, just totally controlling uh, this virus. But on that note, we want to thank Tom Harris-Mollis, MD, who is an infectious disease specialist with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians and Carol Reese Kennedy, who is the Director of Community Health for the IU Health South Central Region, for joining us to speak on local, regional, and national COVID-19 protocols and offering their expert opinions on the concerns and frustrations and the hopes that we all have about vaccinations and mandatory and masking policies, distancing, sanitizing, the whole set of protocols.
1: We'll continue to follow this topic because it's just so important. Bring it on has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bring it on at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The address once again is bring it on at wfhb.org
2: Also, if you have an event or happening the African American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff, or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, or our guests, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org
1: Our show's executive producer is one and only Clarence Boone, and our assistant producer is William Hosea, our consult our consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantel La Our regional theme music was cr- created by Jamal Fm, with additional background tracks by David Baker. Thank you for in this evening for WFHB. I'm Liz Mitchell.
2: I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.
1: You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
0: Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond.
1: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org.
0: That's bring it at wfhb.org.